I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy and not a gender. We're recording this on Big Boy's birthday weekend, 2023. Yeah. Tomorrow is my birthday. I'm turning 33 years old. You're busy. Big Boy. (laughs) You're busy marking diplomas cool. right now, so yeah. I'm just spending the weekend alone for the most part. I felt like I, not to brag, but I felt like I performed that intro with a lot of pep for how tired I am. Yeah. I'm on day five of seven days straight of marking provincial exams, provincial essays. It's a lot of work. Sounds like those are essays for the province, but. <laughs> dear province, <laughs> dear, I love you. Dear Alberta, uh, thanks for filming The Last of Us. Um, and then I'm on day six of 12 straight days of work because I go straight. So I had a day of work and then I started marking the exams and then I go straight from that into the first week of the new semester. So you busy. I'm tired. I get it. But it is fun. I'm reading lots of papers on Sound of Metal. Excellent. Yeah. I read some papers on like Midsommar and Nope and... Get out and Jaws. Jaws. Also, like lots on novels and short stories and stuff. But uh, it's, yeah, meeting some cool people. That's great. Just getting tired. Making too. some money. Making some money, meeting cool people, learning some things to be a better teacher. That's great. Meanwhile, today I went to the movies by myself and I saw everything everywhere all at once again um, because it is the most nominated movie for the Oscars. So the Oscar nominees came out this week and won't deep dive on them, but very exciting. Everywhere, every, every, everything, everywhere, all at once. Picked up the most noms with eleven, which is awesome. I mean, it got everything for the for the main Mac Daddies, and then it got some text as well, and of course, best picture. Uh, and I've been saying it since the beginning. I would absolutely be elated if that won best picture. Also, your boy, my my um, boyfriend, Paul Maskell. I I'm actually very 
I, I mean, like, I both put stock in the Oscars and also think the Oscars are pee-pee-poo-poo. Yes. But I am really pleased that he's being recognized because I don't know that there has been a, been a big Oscar push for After Sun and it hasn't been nominated for anything else, even though I personally believe it's the best movie of the year, end of all time. Um, yeah. But I am really happy that Paul Maskell is nominated. Just like it got something that it's an Oscar nominated movie in yeah. some capacity makes me happy. Also, Brian Tyree Henry got nominated for Causeway. And if you listen to our conversation a few episodes back about Causeway, he was the standout for us. So very excited that he was able to make his way in there. Uh, Women Talking getting screenplay and best picture. And then Triangle of Sadness also weaseling its way in there. We originally saw that when we went to Edmonton International Film Festival. So, so to see it come all the way to the Oscars is exciting. And then you also shared with me that A24 was the most nominated studio at the Oscars. This I mean, week. I think that's true, but well, I, I saw it on Reddit. So, well, just said it. So it is the truth. It is the truth. Um, so that's exciting. We're we're very excited for these movies and actors and actresses and alike that we like. Um, okay, one more piece of news that was very exciting from our week and a very last minute thing that we decided to do um, was Dan Mintz who plays the voice of Tina Belcher on one of our favorite shows, Bob's Burgers, was in town playing at a local comedy club. So the two of us and our best bud Ashley went to see the show. And it was so funny. He was so good. We weren't that familiar with his stand-up. It was excellent. But then the cherry on the top at the end of the night is as we were walking out, he was just there. So we chatted with him for a little bit and got a photo. You can see that on our Instagram at bad dad dot rad dad. dad um but it, it was it was just so great he sounds just like tina like that's just his voice so it was very hard to kind of separate the voice from the character but it was a lot of fun and every day that passes i'm just like man that night was a lot of fun it was great it was a lot of fun it was really really sweet thing it was really it was really nice yes okay um, let's get into the movies. We watched five Smackaroonies this week. Do you want to kick us off with the first one? So the first movie that we went and saw was Suspiria. Suspiria 1977, um, not the new one. It is a crime horror film directed by Daria Argento and written by him as well as uh, Daria Nicolodi. Is that right? That's right. Say the same first name. All right. And it's based on a book by Thomas De Quincey. It stars Jessica Harper as Susie Banyan, Stephanie Cassini as Sarah, Flavio Bucci as Daniel, Joan Bennett as Madame Blanc, and Alita Valley as Miss Tam. There's never been a better Italian name than Flavio Bucci. <laughs> Flavio Bucci. Um, the synopsis is an American newcomer to a prestigious German ballet academy comes to realize the school is a front for something sinister amid a series of grisly murders. Uh, we were really excited to see this in the theater. Of course, our favorite theater in the world, favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema was playing it. Um, we saw it with a couple good friends of ours, and we kind of have been looking forward to it for about a month. Um, so we went, we saw, we enjoyed. What did you think of Suspiria? First of all, I, when I read that synopsis and just hearing it back now, before I'd ever seen the words grisly murders written out, I always thought when people said that, that they died from a grizzly bear. And the bear murdered them. So stupid. That does sound like something you would tell me. <laughs> Got lots of those in my past. Um, yeah. I mean, first of all, we went and saw this at Metro Cinema. 
and it had a preamble before it um, from the curator, mm-hmm. which was, it was very long. You could tell he was very passionate about the movie and it was like a solid 10 minutes before that we got into the movie proper. But I was really looking forward to revisiting it because, yeah, we rented it a long, long, long time ago. And we weren't really hip to Jalo and what it's all about. I think just in general, we misunderstood the context of the movie. Yeah. So there was a really cool rental place. If you're from Edmonton and area and you're around our age or older, you probably know of it. It was called the Movie Studio. And they had a really fantastic selection of international films or just hard to find genre films like horror um, and things that you couldn't find at like a blockbuster or a video update or a VHQ necessarily. Yeah. And so we rented it from there when we both still lived at home. So we must have been 19 or 20. And we knew it was an Italian horror film. We knew that it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. What we didn't know is that it's not in Italian. Yeah, And we didn't know that these Jello films often recorded with no audio and then dubbed later, but it is still the like the intended and only version of the film um, or the original version of the film. And we were like, what did we get the wrong one? Why can't we watch it? In, like, why can't we get the Italian? Because we don't typically watch dubbed things. Yeah. Um, we also watched it like during the day. We didn't know that it was a bit campy and mm-hmm. silly. And we were just like, what the heck? And we kind of put it to the side and heard about people loving it and we're like what's the deal so we knew we wanted to give it another go we weren't ready for it we weren't ready we're different film watchers than we were then both in that we have more of an openness to in being invited to whatever the film is offering openness and patience when it comes to watching films yeah yeah and i think a huge part of that is the switch that we did you know quite a few years ago now to doing the mystery movie picks, just being like, I am open and excited for whatever is going to unfold before me. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's something that you have picked um, or it's something that we know very little about going into a movie or we're revisiting something that we, you know, either already love or haven't loved. We're like, this. I'm open to whatever the new experience of watching it is. It doesn't mean we're necessarily going to love it, but it means we're open to what the film is offering. Yeah. Instead of shutting it down ahead of time. Yeah. And and that's the reason I was so, so much looking forward to this so much. Um, just because of how well known and how beloved it is. Um, and the, the theater energy, like there was quite a few people there. So there was like yeah. energy in the theater. Um, but yeah, digging into it. There's, there's definitely, definitely like a campiness. Like you said, there's a ridiculousness to it. But I found because I knew that going in, even though we had watched it so long ago, I had so much more appreciation this time for the craft of the film Mm -hmm. and the techniques it chose to use um, to create some very tense moments, some creepy moments. And then even the moments around the the cheesy or the campy, I thought worked really well. And I wasn't I wasn't as I don't know if put off is the right term for it, but I, I wasn't as willing to laugh at it well because you understood that, that was the intention yeah it wasn't accidental that it was like this it's also a film that i do think really benefits from being seen in the theater yes or if you're going to watch it at home like on a decent tv lights off full attention on it which is not how we watched it the first time mm-hmm. um and you know one of the things that the curator who introed the film talked about is that in almost every shot of the film, it is 
filled to the brim, mm -hmm. <laughs> like whether it's with color or pattern or objects. Um, and that it's talked about how some people have looked at it as a like fear of the minimal or a fear of the void, but instead he likes to look at it as a celebration of the maximal. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really cool thing and it kind of um, provided a nice entry point for this second viewing of Suspiria. And on the big screen, that use of so much mm -hmm. and the very vibrant colors and the haunting and loud score, yeah, which is just that really stuck with me this time is the score. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um just really worked for me. Yeah, I agree. Like everything was just firing in all cylinders. Like while there is a lot on screen and it is very maximal, I never felt overwhelmed. I just felt kind of in awe of everything that was on screen, especially colors. The use of colors and and yeah, and patterns is very striking. And that's what I kind of associate with this film now. So this movie is a lot of people's favorite movie of all time or favorite horror movie of all time. And I think the thing for me that stops it from being that is the exposition. <laughs> it can get very expository. Yeah. And um, I can't remember who, so I'm sorry that I'm not crediting this person, but somebody um, I, who I believe watched it at Metro, I, or at least somebody I follow on Letterboxd, talked about how they feel like this would be an easy five out of five for them if it was almost a more abstract score color strung together looser narrative without these attempts at exposition um and i think that's true for me mm -hmm. although it's not true for everyone so i i love that this is some people's favorite horror movie or favorite movie of all time and i totally get why but those are the moments moments that kind of pulled me out of what i was enjoying about the visuals and the soundscape and the gore and horror right um, because there's yeah. some gross, gross, gross stuff in this and some really awesome kills. and Yeah. The blood is so thick. And it's, <laughs> it's so the, it's vibrant. Like, it's like paint. Yeah. And it's this like bright, striking red that just, it just lights up on the screen, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, those, those kind of moments that slow down, they it felt like they bogged down what I liked about the film. I agree. There's a lot that could be trimmed. And I feel like... Uh, I believe it's all in the the genres that it's set up as. It's a crime horror film. Yeah, I feel like you could trim the crime and just make it a straight up horror film and trim out some of that exposition, which is lent, which is speaking more heavily to the crime components of the film. And uh, yeah, but I, I, I agree with you. I want to be mindful of saying like that's something that would make us like the film more. That doesn't mean it would make it a better film. Yes, this is all our opinion. Yeah, and something I will say, our main character, our protagonist, Susie. Oh, no. <laughs> Re-say that properly. Oh, my goodness. I am reading so many <laughs> papers where, like, the spelling of protagonist would be pronounced protagonist. So please say things properly today. <laughs> okay, our protagonist, Susie. Thank you. I just felt so frustrated for her throughout this whole movie because she is just, like... Time and time again, by dingus after dingus after dingus, and put into scenarios which just are so aggravated. But it, I mean, for sure, it makes for such a compelling story and just totally pulls you in and puts you in her shoes. But man, I that was a feeling that I was feeling this time around was frustration for our homegirl Susie. Can you guess why Argento says he casts Jessica Harper? Hmm. Why? He has big eyes. 
That's true. Um, This is also kind of a really funky bit of info. Mm -hmm. Uh, So originally he wrote in the script that the ballet school would be for children 12 and under. Oh. And then um, the producer, who was his father, um, and the studio were like, nah, we can't do this movie. It was the same script. Same film. Same film, but 12 and under. Because (laughs) they were like, it'll get banned. Well, yeah. Like we won't be allowed to do it. Heavens. So he changed the age, but nothing else. And so some people have said that's why the characters are so like naive and ridiculous because they were meant to be children. Oh. Um, and also something he did, which I didn't know this until I read it in the trivia. So I don't I'm curious if you picked up on this as a visual person, is he put all the doorknobs higher up? Yeah. So that they would have to reach for them like children would have to reach for a doorknob. Yeah, I did notice that. And it just Again, it just adds to kind of this dreamlike, otherworldly feel. That yeah, it exists. gives it a, and that for me, and I actually, you know, I could see. I'm not speaking clearly. Sorry, very tired. This is day five of essay marking brain. Um, it's the surreal elements that I love so much about this, and that I didn't understand were going to be a part of it when we watched it the first time. And so, knowing that this time, I was so into it. And it feels like those moments of exposition pull out of the surreal for me. But I could see how for some people, that's just almost like the fact that all of a sudden there's this psychologist giving an explanation is surreal. Right. And they could, could like that kind of jarring shift. And it clearly is intentional, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. And maybe on a third watch. No, again, now knowing that all those big exposition dumps kind of happen, maybe that can help enhance the experience in a surreal way. Well, that's my favorite thing about all art is that we bring with it our current contexts. Yes. And so that includes the conditions of which we're watching the film, where we are personally at in that moment, emotionally, physically our hunger, our tiredness, mm-hmm. our if we've just been annoyed by something, right? All of that we bring with us. But we also bring whatever understandings we have about the film, either from prior viewings, any biases we have. And that changes every time you watch something, right? Mm-hmm. And so I love, and I'm so appreciative that you were like this too, Elliot. I love being open to having a shifting understanding, mm-hmm. right? That maybe watching it a third time, I will like it more or I'll like it less, or I'll like it the same, but then I'm open to having a new experience with it. Yeah. And this is one I definitely want to keep watching for the rest of my life. There's yeah. some films where I'm like, I saw that once and I am good. Yeah, we have. there's a film we watched later this week that has a lot of that kind of thinking wrapped up in it. But I agree. I, I really enjoyed watching this. Wouldn't watch it all the time, but it'd be like this kind of nice treat to have when it's just, I just want to live in the world of Suspiria. Yeah, it's a, this is a full-size candy bar. <laughs> yes. Um, I do want to quickly mention what Suspiria means because I love it. Can okay. you guess? Do you have any guesses? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to lean into the obvious and because it's crime, I'm going to say suspect. Oh, interesting. So it depends on the language, but it can mean to sigh or to whisper. I hate that. I love it. But I love that. Yeah. Suspicious. (laughs) Right? So good. Uh, This is such a theatrical, surreal. I would love to um, go to a 
interactive immersive theater based on Suspiria. That'd be cool. That'd be like we went to one in New York. I don't know if we've mentioned on the show before called Then She Fell. It no longer exists. Sadly, COVID killed it. Um, but it was based on Alice in Wonderland. So cool. And it was one of my favorite things I've ever done in my entire life. And I would gladly have gone back to it again and again. I think that Third Rail Projects, if you're listening, your <laughs> yeah. next piece should be inspired by Suspiria. I would love so cool. to go experience that world in an immersive way. Yeah, just you said the word theatrical, and that's that's how the performances come across. Like it's, yeah. it's like they're on, they're in a stage play, and they they're projecting and going over the top to get the emotions across. And you totally you feel it and you buy into it. So yeah, an immersive theater experience both be incredible, but I can also see it fucking you up. Yeah, and, and I would go. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and that's why it's also it's really a treat to see on the big screen. Totally. I, 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 this, it also kind of left me, you know, I just, I think this is the only Argento that we've watched and I would really like to watch some more. I mean, we've kind of started dipping our toes a little bit more into Jallo. Um, By that, you mean we've seen two. That's right. (laughs) But I feel like we've been having more conversations with Lori about what to further dip our toes into when it comes to Jallo. Yeah. And there was a, um, Suspiria was part of a collection, I believe, of five Jello films, and we really did want to go to all five of them and do like a special episode on them with Lori. But because of diploma marking, because of Life. your birthday, because of the switch from first to second semester, it just wasn't feasible for us to make some of these late shows. Um, I don't know if you know this, Elliot. This is the last thing I'll say mm-hmm. about this before I ask the question. Um, You're going to propose? <laughs> absolutely not sorry i know it's your birthday that's not the present Damn it. um i don't know if you know this but i think it was like a month or two ago sometime in the last couple months in vancouver and i think some other places wow i really don't have the information straight but i do know that in vancouver they did a screening of suspiria with goblin playing the music live that's so cool and some folks that we know from edmonton went that's sick like three people we know from Edmonton were there. One day I want to go to one of those things where the film is playing and then they, there's a live orchestra or musician. This would be a good one though. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I would love that. That's wicked. How did Suspiria make you feel? Made me feel like I was in a beautiful, ridiculous, sometimes long winded fever dream. And I'll gladly go back to that dream time and time again. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel a wicked, strange, haunting joy. Ooh. I love that we went real comma-heavy with our feelings on that one. I, You know what? I love a comma-heavy moment. Comma-chameleons over here. <laughs> okay. So that was great. Went to Metro, watched Suspiria, and that was the first of a doubleheader for that night because we followed that puppy right up with the 1988 action horror sci-fi film, They Live. It was directed by John Carpenter, written based on the short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson. And the screenplay was written by John Carpenter. It stars Roddy Piper as Nada, Keith David as Frank, Meg Foster as Holly, and Raymond St. Jacques as Street Preacher. (laughs) Uh, The synopsis is, they influence our decisions without us knowing it. They numb our senses without us feeling it. They control our lives without us realizing it. They live. It's a great synopsis. It's like, 
is it a is it a tagline? Is it a synopsis? Who needs to know? <laughs> um, yeah, what do you think of They Live? So this is another kind of sad story of Metro was doing kind of a John Carpenter retrospective, and I think they had four or five films they were playing throughout January. And like deeper cut Carpenter Yeah, stuff. it was Dark Star, um, this... Assault on Precinct 13. Escape from New York. Escape I guess York. not all deep cut stuff. No, but, but you know, like it wasn't it wasn't Halloween. It wasn't the thing. Yeah. Um, And there was a part of us that really wanted to go to all of them. Mm-hmm. But again, because January has been it's just a really busy month in our lives. And some of those were like two hour movies at 930 on a weeknight. It just wasn't feasible. So like with picking Suspiria of the five Jallos, we picked They Live of the four or five John Carpenter films. Uh, and it was it was quite quite fun because we went with two friends to Suspiria and one of them had to go play some floor hockey. Hell yeah. And the other one just decided to stay with us. So came for the double feature. Um, I did like this. Yeah. I did. I was a little tired and it took a little bit to get going for me. Um, so here's the thing about John Carpenter. I find you really like John Carpenter. I do. And he has his foot in horror and his other foot in action. Yes. And if you listen to this show, you know how I feel about action, Mm -hmm. which is struggle. Yeah. So the moments where it got more dystopian, more, I wouldn't call it body horror, but he is playing with the body. Mm -hmm. I really liked it. But it was a little too pew, 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 punch, punch, punch for me. Yeah. To, to love it. Um, you know, I think like Halloween is my my favorite. <laughs> Not that I've really seen much John Carpenter, but I love Halloween. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I really like The Thing, but it can lean a little bit more into that action or that like guys being dudes stuff. Right. Yeah. Especially The Thing where it's just guys being dudes. And I like The Thing. I, I do. I really like the thing, and I love when it goes full body horror. But you showed me way back when we first started dating. You showed me Big Trouble, Little China, and I hated it. Is that him? Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. yeah. I would be willing to revisit it. Oh yes, that's all oh, I needed Joe. to hear. <laughs> yes. Um, that was a mistake. <laughs> but you know, like the other movies of his that were playing, I'm like, I don't know if I'd like them, and so. Yeah, you know, it it was it was very action heavy. Mm-hmm. Now, in doing my um, post film research, I found out that Roddy Piper is a wrestler. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I guess, yeah. If you hire a wrestler, you're going to be pew 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 punch punch punch. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, a whole, there's a whole wrestling <laughs> sequence in the middle of this thing. <laughs> yeah, there is indeed. I could have taken a snooze for some of those parts. Yeah, I mean. I hear you. I, I I liked it. I think we're on the same boat on this one because it was a little bit slow to the to get to where it was going. The some of the action sequences were gratuitous and ridiculous, which made for you know made for a good laugh. But yeah, I mean, going into this, I'd been curious about it for years. I also didn't realize it was a John Carpenter movie until it showed up Mm. in this um, series that Metro was doing. And Carpenter, like you said, he's kind of got a foot in horror, 
got a foot in action, but he also really enjoys camp. And there's kind of a very particular uh, type of camp, and that's carpenter camp, was what I'll call it. It was interesting watching this following Suspiria because the ridiculousness of this made the ridiculous moments in Suspiria feel less ridiculous. Yeah, this goes like full cheesy one-liner, but on purpose. Again, right? It's that being open to what the film is inviting you into and like it's winking and nudging you as it does these cheesy one-liners. It's not, it's intentional, it's purposeful. And to dismiss that is pee-pee poo-poo. Yes. You don't have to like it, but you know, it's it's done with craft. It's done on purpose. Yeah. No, I and like there were some people in the audience that were like really into it, probably too into it. Um but I the only I think the only thing that I knew about this movie was the I came here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> yeah. Which is still great. <laughs> even even though even as soon as he starts saying it, I'm just like, "Oh, I'm here for this." I also I did not know that Keith David was in this and I actually quite like when Keith David shows up in stuff. I just like him as an actor. He's one of those guys that's in so much stuff, but if you ask me right now, everything that he's in, I couldn't I couldn't tell you. He was, mm. in, he was in Nope. He was in The Thing. He's in this. He was in Nope? Yeah. He was their dad. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. True. Okay. Um you made me laugh though, because when we were when that kind of gratuitous wrestling scene popped up in the middle of it, I think you leaned over to me and you were just like, "Just kiss already." <laughs> <laughs> so then this fight kind of turned into this thing of like these two guys just trying to kiss each other. Well, it's it's funny because it seems like just in the reading I've done that they had a lot of fun making this. I see that, um, and that. So I read that that fight was originally just supposed to be like a quick twenty second thing, but. Um, Keith David and Roddy Piper like wanted it to be more, and so they <laughs> they just kept going Went for it. It's a five minute twenty second wrestling fight scene. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> and for me, this is a little too long, but I could see how people who like action and camp, yeah, would like just be all in on that. There was someone in the audience who wouldn't stop shouting things and I wanted to throttle them because nobody else was partaking um, and like read the room at a certain point and stop. They had a good time. Yeah. They had a good time. Chill. Read the room. Nobody else is yelling. Um, Maybe a wrestling fan, you know. Did you notice that despite the fact that the character Nada, he doesn't have a name, they refer to him as Nada. In the credits. Gotcha. Um, she knows that he was sometimes wearing a wedding ring despite the fact that he's a single man in the film. That's <laughs> no. because Roddy Piper refused to take off his wedding ring. All right. Wrestlers, am I right? <laughs> um, do you also know, just a trivia machine today, that Carpenter wrote the role for Kurt Russell and was like, eh, maybe I should cast somebody else. I keep casting Kurt. It's funny because I can totally see Kurt Russell being in this 100% but but I feel like I feel like the trade-off was putting Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China which is kind of another Carpenter camp movie and I'm glad that Roddy Piper was not in Big Trouble in Little Mm -hmm. China Uh, Kurt Russell is great in all the Carpenter stuff so 
I mean, I think he would have been fine here. It would have been good, but this movie is a goof, and I guess having like a wrestler as the main guy is, is another goof. You're in advertising. I am. This is a transition. And you like art. Yeah. Who's you, art? Uh, Just kidding. Go on. Did you pick up on what famous art campaign was clearly inspired by this film? All the Shepherd Fairy. Yeah. Obey stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I feel like you liked that back in the day. The, you know, late 2000s, is that what we call them? Shepherd Fairy was a big deal. Yeah. He did like the whole... Obama, Obama campaign, campaign yeah. stuff. And everybody had that on t-shirts and stuff. Um, yeah, so he said that he was, it wasn't just like that obey and the and the type and, you know, that graphic white, it's it's italicized and bolded, right? Type. Um, it's very minimalist. It wasn't just that that was striking to him. Like, he likes the film and he feels like he was, in, like he incorporates some of the thematics and social commentary of the film into the work that he does. And I was like, that's, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, I get that too. I, I mean, I thought, I thought all the minimalist design was on point, you know. So those were the parts when it got into that dystopian stuff, I was so all in and I was like, if it, if that was the film and it was less pew, 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 less like, like, it's very like, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like kind of like a Western, <laughs> like tumbleweed music. Yeah. Um, Carpenter loves to just, I mean, he does his own music in most of his stuff, but he loves to come up with a riff and then just, just use it use it over and over again. But if it had gone more, I loved the way they looked. I yeah. loved it. And I love so creepy. The, I mean, it's it's pretty like on the nose, but I think it's, you know, it's satirical and it's meant to be quite in your face. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you see like what the magazines really say and, what yeah. the, you know, all of that stuff. I wanted to live in that world a little bit more and less of the like, I got to hide. Yeah. You know, um, I really, really, really liked the design of of they, if that's what we're calling them. Uh, John Carpenter said that he wanted them to resemble rotting corpses um, because Nailed it. symbolically they're meant to be a corrupting force of humanity. So they should represent the decay and corruption, mm-hmm. which is very cool. Um, also, there was so they referred to them as ghouls yeah. on the set. Um, and there was like one main person who played any of the like main ghouls, regardless of gender. Uh, and that was their like stunt coordinator. Mm. And there's a great line from John Carpenter when he said, even though their stunt coordinator played all these like women ghouls who were often in like business attire and like stilettos, he said, ah, when you have 14 black belts, you can wear pumps. (laughs) Kick (laughs) ass. I love that. Now, uh, would you be surprised that what like what what do you think this film is saying politically? Uh, Is it pro-capitalism? You think it's pro-advertising? Pro-capitalism? It thinks that like we should. Oh no! Like it's it's showing how dangerous capitalism can be and how elitist it can be. And would you believe that white supremacists have co-opted the film? No, I'm not surprised. Yeah, and have been like oh, incredibly anti-Semitic and said that that's what the film is about. So I guess Carpenter, in the last handful of years, like what like he it was either like uh, in writing or on a radio show, I can't remember exactly, but I do have the quote. He said, they live is about 
yuppies and unrestrained capitalism. It has nothing to do with Jewish control of the world. That is a slander and a lie. Yeah. What a shame. Like, people have to come out and be like, stop co-opting my film, you yeah. racist. <sighs> that's that's got oh man that's gotta be so brutal like you make this thing that's supposed to be like this fun project and like have a bit of a a political message and then it gets fucking just co-opted by nazis yeah hate that but what i do think is funny is that roddy piper thought it was based on real life oh roddy because <laughs> he saw a 1978 a short film, which is presented as a documentary, but it's not, called The Brunswick Affair, which has a similar thing about capitalism having secret, not capitalism, sorry, advertising having secret subliminal messages. And he thought that that was a real documentary. So he thought he was, they were basing this on a, a real thing. I feel like Roddy probably watched <laughs> Ghost Watch and was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. Oh no, pipes. What <laughs> <laughs> if pipes is in my house? <laughs> So what I'll say about this movie is it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't think this is one that I want to see again, although I would certainly watch clips from it again. Yeah. I think if one of our nibblings was like, I want to see that creepy, weird, mm. they live one, I'd be like, yeah, I, I'll happily watch that with you. But. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. This is one of those films that I would be willing to watch if somebody else was watching it for the first time. Yeah. But like, I don't think I would. If they initiated it. Correct. Yeah. I'd be there. But it's not something I would seek out with you or on my own to watch again. But I'm very glad I've seen it. I agree. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel in its political commentary both a sense of futility at the reality of our world, you know, and how nothing has changed since 1988. If anything, it's gotten worse. But also a really needed willingness to laugh at it. Yeah. While I was watching it, it made me feel intrigued, yet befuddled. What were you befuddled by? Just how it turned from this kind of more earnest, wanting to have a bit more <laughs> of an earnest political angle, and then it just turned into five-minute-long rustling scenes. And funny one-liners. There is a line in this film that is one of my favorite things I've ever heard in my entire life, and that alone makes the film worth it. It has something to do with cheese dip. <laughs> right, and that's all I'll say because if you haven't seen They Live and you want to see it you need to experience that line raw <laughs> raw well that was our fun little double feature movie night where we didn't get a chance to see all the curated jollos or all the curated carpenter retrospectives but we did happen to see one of each back to back hell yeah then we got in a couple of mystery movie picks I'm always sad when we have a week with no mystery movie picks so I'm glad we each got to have one this week mm -hmm. um I picked the movie Boy. It is the last movie we needed to watch to have completed the Taika Waititi feature film catalog. Was it true? Yeah, we've now seen them all. Oh, there you go. Um, so Boy is a 2010 comedy drama directed and written by Taika Waititi. Um, it stars James Rolston as Boy, Tiahu Ikatone Witu as Rocky, Taika himself as Alamein, and Morangi Tihor as Dynasty. The synopsis is Boy, an 11-year-old child and devout Michael Jackson fan who lives on the east coast of New Zealand in 1984, gets a chance to know his absentee criminal father who has returned to find a bag of money he buried years ago. It's a great synopsis. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think of Boy? I have not ever looked at Taika Waititi's uh, filmography, so I I wasn't sure where we were, where we were at, what we had yet to see, and I had never heard of this film before. Oh, really? Ever? I had, I didn't know that. I had no clue. Like even when the the name came up, I've had it in my back pocket for a while. For like a night when we wanted something a little simpler and that was a good length. I've, I've considered it for like the past couple months, actually. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I thought that this was pretty solid. Um, it's not my favorite thing that I've ever seen. It's also maybe not necessarily my favorite thing that I've seen of Taika's. What's, what's, what is your favorite thing you've seen of Taika's? That's a real good question. <laughs> it's clearly what we do in the shadows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> I'm looking at his filmography here. So it's Eagle versus Eagle versus Shark was his first film. You have seen that, yes? I have. I don't really remember it, though. Uh, then Boy. Uh, then What We Do in the Shadows. Then Hunt for the Builder People. Then Thor Ragnarok. Then Jojo Rabbit. And then Thor Love and Thunder. Yeah. What We Do in the Shadows, of course. Silly me. Um, but this has kind of the, what I'll call it, the trademark Taika humor and heart that he brings mm-hmm. into his mm-hmm. films. Um. Where it is some of my favorite humor mm-hmm. in movies. It's just stuff. It's this very dry humor delivered in a great New Zealand Kiwi accent <laughs> that I just adore. But it also has these very real, very human components to the storytelling that just kind of tug on your heartstrings. And I feel like if you watch some of these stories on a certain day, it could really get you. Um, like you kind yeah. of you kind of mentioned a very particular scene that happens in Jojo Rabbit that is a standout moment of something very heavy that happens yeah. amidst this otherwise very comedic movie. Yeah, I think what Taika does best when he's not strangled by Marvel is balance heavy, sad reality with sweet levity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film really has that. I mean, it is rife with dad stuff. It's rife with dad in jail stuff, which you can't relate to, but I sure can. Mm. Um, my dad was arrested three different times in my life, and the third time he spent a year in remand. So, you know, dad in jail. My dad never came back and had uh, money buried somewhere, but <laughs> that sounds like something my dad would have done, to be yeah. honest. Um, he did, when they tore down his store... The people who had bought it um, knew my mom and they found wedding rings in a film canister in the wall, drywalled in. So (laughs) it's my dad. (laughs) Um, I think it didn't need the Michael Jackson stuff. Like it both wasn't like it wasn't as prominent as, you know, the Hitler character in Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. The moments that they had it were like cool, but they just didn't through line enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is cool about this film is that it was filmed in Taika's town that he grew up in, house that he grew up in, and school that he went to when oh, he was a kid. Cool. And so I think there's a lot of personal stuff in this movie, and I felt that. Yeah, yeah, it it, it definitely had that feeling. I mean the. And the the very human look at family and deadbeat dads, yeah, and the effect that those dads and the decisions of a, even just the decisions of adults within a family can have 
these effects that kind of ripple through the entire family. I mean, boy is essentially having to take on an adult's responsibilities. And like you said, he's 11 years old. And I think the film does a really great job of exploring if this is relatable to you, it's going to like this film is either going to be something that really resonates or that's really hard to watch, which is having a parent that you know is going to let you down and yet admiring them so much anyway Mm -hmm. and like wanting to be a part of their life and wanting to believe it's got some kind of big fish stuff in it of this Mm -hmm. like wanting to believe these grand stories about your parent and not wanting to face the reality that perhaps they are much more disappointing than you've been led to believe and not even when they continually show you that yeah that they are going to let you down that they are not going to be accountable they're not even going to be your buddy (laughs) um yeah still not wanting to let go of that and this film does a great job of showing those cycles and those patterns and the danger of like uncritically adoring your parent and yet as a child that's so crappy to be put in a position where you can't look up to your parent or trust your parent um and so to put that responsibility on an 11 year old is just really heavy and yet it's the reality of our world yeah i mean you're putting that responsibility on an 11 year old who should be a kid and have the ability to do kid stuff but they're taking on so much responsibility so then when the parent is acting like a kid then and then opening the door for the kid to start acting like a kid and then and then there's just like this struggle of where does the responsibility fall then and and who do you blame and who's who's at fault and i mean it's always it's always the parents <laughs> like it it always comes back to if you if you're going to be a parent if you're going to make the decision to have a kid then that's your responsibility and no matter what so relinquishing parental control guidance whatever it is onto your children can be a dangerous thing. And yet that's the reality of our world. It happens all the time, right? And I think this movie highlights it really, really well. And it, you know, I think there's a lot of really thoughtful, complex stuff in here about, you know, what do you do when you have a deadbeat parent? Do you, and you still want them in your life? Mm -hmm. Do you make the decision that like you're going to cut them out because they're never going to be the parent you want them to be or do you try and meet them where where they're at and i actually think this film has a lot of really insightful things to say about the complication of making a decision like that mm-hmm. and I, I thought that was done really really well like it is just the dad stuff in this is done really well mm-hmm. i also thought the cast kills it yeah everybody's great a lot of kids in it all the kids are great would you believe um it's true but would you believe that there was a different boy cast as boy and a week before filming Waititi was like, eh, it's not working. And he cast James Rolleston, who was just an extra on set. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, you, you're better. Yeah. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. I mean, I thought that he did a great job. He did. I liked his, uh, there's a lot of like close-ups on his eyes. Mm. And he has like a nice freckly nose. Like he just has like a really, he's a really cute little guy. It's a really cute he's little a guy. Nice little I think he's a full-grown adult now, but he is. His IMDb photo is like, "Oh, you're not a boy anymore. You're no longer a boy." Well, according to you, Elliot, you're a boy even when you're 33. Big, just a big boy. It's a big boy. Um, I also, th- I also think Taika is just a bit of a babe. Taika's such, a, such a crush on Taika. I'm on a first name basis with him. If you haven't noticed, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, who don't I have a crush on? But yeah, he's a babe. Yeah. No, he's great. And this is a 
the first of uh, two movies this week where you can see, because this is a full length that is earlier, this is only his second full length, you can start seeing the ground being laid for his subsequent films and the things that people have come to really like about Taika and the films that he makes. Yeah, I, I think that this is. I think this is really great. I think I'll, I'll continue going to see his movies unless it's Thor movies. No, I'll probably I mean, still, we'll go still go see them. Yeah, I'll probably still go see him. I also do think um, if you were to, you the listener, yeah, I've said that in a very. I'm reading too much second person stuff lately on diplomas. Um, if you saw Boy and you liked it, I think Reservation Dogs is something you'd really like. I see a really. Mm-hmm. And I know Taika is not as heavily involved as in Reservation Dogs as he is in some of the other TV shows that he's been a part of. Well, I guess Our Flag Means Death he's more heavily involved in. Uh, but I see a lot of connections to some of the heavier elements of Reservation Dogs. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't checked out Reservation Dogs and Our Flag Means Death, those are two really great shows. And I think something I really like about Taika is even though he's making these MCU films, he still... He's he's a great example, at least right now, of mm-hmm. using your voice and your cultural currency to uplift other voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so using his name to not just be like this, like boy, which is made in 2010, is definitely exploring like like his experience of being a person who's indigenous to New Zealand, um, who's of Maori descent, but he's also using that name that he has now to make sure that indigenous voices in North America are being uplifted, mm-hmm. um, that queer voices are being uplifted in our flag means death. Um, and that's, that's what you do. That's what you should be doing yeah. is using the power that you have to be a part of projects that have you handing off the mic to marginalized voices. Mm-hmm. And I think he does a really, really great job of that. Despite the fact that he's making these big budget Marvel movies, he's also doing these smaller projects. Um, and I, I, yeah. Want to give him a big kiss? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's really great, and really, I really like how you put that because for such a long time, all of the people doing comedy and making comedies, uh, it was all about punching down. But the fact that Taika is not only making some of my favorite comedy in the genre right now, he's like you said, using his comedy to uplift and lift up. Uh, different groups of people and the different people that exist within the world in his films. I think a perfect example of that. I am personally not the biggest fan of Jojo rabbit. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I need to revisit it. I know people love, love that movie, but I I had some strange feelings about it, but his Oscar speech Mm. encapsulates that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, Maybe we'll post a post a little link to it in the show notes because I think it's worth listening to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll plus do he's it. beautiful to look at. Beautiful. How did boy make you feel? It made me feel that perfect blend of happy sad that I like to have when watching anything, but that I know Taika is very capable of making me feel. How about you? It made me feel the humor and sadness of disappointing dads. Yeah. But also that potential for the radical disruption of the patterns put forth by disappointing dads. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, the work we're trying to do. DDs. Disappointing dads. <gasps> Those darn DDs. Yeah. Okay. Next film 
was my mystery movie pick, and it was a film that I wanted to revisit. It was the 2016 comedy Swiss Army Man. It was directed by the directing duo duo Daniels, or Dan Kwan and Daniel Shiner, the directors behind Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, and it was also written by them. It stars Paul Dano as Hank and Daniel Radcliffe as Manny. You got a crush, big old crush on him, too. Oh, Daniel Radcliffe? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call it a big old crush. But he's in. he's on the list. I So... I have a crush on Daniel Radcliffe as a human being. I don't think I've ever been attracted to him as a character. Like, I don't have a crush on Harry Potter. I don't have a crush on him in, like, What If or any of the stuff he's been in. But, like, he is pretty freaking cool in real life. He's just a small little guy. I love small little guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The synopsis is a hopeless man stranded on a deserted island befriends a dead body. And together they go on a surreal journey to get home. Okay, so like I said, I've been wanting to revisit this for a while, uh, especially since seeing everything everywhere all at once. And right off the bat, I'd like to get into the story of how we originally saw this. <laughs> so what do you think, of Swiss Army Man? You want me to tell that story? And Yeah, why don't you kick us off with the story? Okay. Some of the details are vague because it would have been in 2016, which like we're coming up on 10 years ago. I guess so, yeah. Right? So it was a while ago. What I do recall is that it was an advanced screening. And it wasn't an advanced screening the way they are now, where like it's just the Thursday before it comes out and we're calling it an advanced screening, but anyone can go. We won tickets. Yeah. that's That was the detail I couldn't remember, but I felt that it was true. Yeah. And you recollect that we won tickets as well? Yeah, because the local radio station, Sonic 1029, they used to do... <laughs> not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. They used to, it used to be really easy to enter to win tickets or use your quote-unquote sonic points oh is that a, okay. to get tickets or they had a lot of advanced tickets and advanced screenings for concerts and movies and stuff and i remember getting tickets for this because we were really excited for right. it um i mean daniel ratcliffe being used as a swiss army man yeah that, we were all in hilarious and we liked paul dano from ruby sparks and little miss sunshine little miss sunshine so we were we were into it we didn't know anything about the daniels mm-hmm. um so yeah, we got these advanced tickets. It was at Cineplex North Edmonton, and that's far away for us. Very far. Not a theater we go to. Yeah. So we go to it, and we were loving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was also kind of a bleepy person in the audience, and we had encountered- was that, was that in that one? So we had had a previous encounter at a different film with who I think was the same bleepy person. And I think it's possible that that person has a body that causes them to be bleepy, um, but it is a little tough to watch a movie with consistent yakking noises. <laughs> um, so that was happening. But we were loving the movie. Like this, yeah. most of this movie is a slam dunk for the stuff that we liked in 2016. Yes. Now what happened is there was a terrible storm that day. Yeah, you can start hearing the like thunder. Like Tornado 87 quality. Yeah, you can start hearing the thunder in the theater. And the movie cut out. Like the storm was so bad, the power cut and it cut. If you've seen Swiss Army Man, it cut right before things take a turn. Like the last act, like right before the last act. And the last act is quick. Yeah. It's like 10 minutes or less, I'm going to say. Probably I'm wrong about that. But there's a distinct shift and the movie cut before that. And because it was an advanced screening and it was a very small independent film, we didn't get a chance to see it for a long time. 
Yeah. Like I think it was weeks to months. Um, yeah. And so that whole time we're just thinking about how much we liked the first hour and whatever of this film, how funny it was, how silly it was, how, how original, how original it was. And like, can't wait to see how it ends. Mm-hmm. And then when we finally got a chance to see it, I really didn't like the ending. Yeah. And so that the fact that we were waiting to see the ending and could talk about the first bit of it and relive what we liked about that, I think perhaps as we spoke about earlier with context having such an influence on what you take away from a film and the way you feel about a film, we'll never know the answer to would we have been less bothered by the ending had we not had the movie cut out exactly when it did. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was curious in rewatching it, how I would feel about the ending and man, do I still struggle with it? I really don't like it. And I yeah. really don't like how it reframes the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, I just don't get what they want me to take away from it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that too. It totally, like you said, it totally had us and it has everything going for it. And it just has that signature Daniel's, just going for it humor that's really silly really ridiculous i mean the whole concept of a swiss army man <laughs> it's, yeah it's it's so funny and then like the dynamic between daniel radcliffe and paul dano is also it it has some really lovely moments yeah that i yeah. really really like and are standouts and highlights in the film for me but yeah just where it and where the story ends up it loses me as well it and it shifts how I was perceiving and what I thought about the characters by the end. And then rewatching it now, it, it's kind of just tainted them. Because when on we rewatch. So technically this is our third time we've seen it, but the first time we saw it, we didn't see the whole thing. And then the second time we saw it, we hadn't yet seen the ending. So this mm-hmm. was the first time we had watched it knowing the ending. And it really made it hard for me to enjoy the parts that I had previously enjoyed the first two times that I had seen it. And that's just really a shame mm-hmm. because I do want to talk about what I like about it. Mm-hmm. One is that silly, goofy humor. You're either going to like it or it's going to grate on you and you're going to think it's too juvenile and you're going to hate it. Um, and if you don't like it here, you're probably not going to like it and everything everywhere all at once. It's a critique I've seen. You know, I read a review that I really appreciated where somebody said, you know, I watched everything everywhere all at once. I think the performances are great, but like that humor... And that like maximalism just doesn't work for me. And I was like, that's yeah. totally freaking fair. Yeah. Like I went and saw it by myself today um, at a matinee. And because it is getting, it's been nominated for so many Oscars, it's bringing some of the older moviegoers into the theaters because they're like, oh, it's, this is getting a lot of buzz. I probably should see it before Oscar night. I, I kind of looked over and was looking at people's faces, like some <laughs> of these older folks. I mean, the lady beside me fell asleep and was asleep most of the movie. And then there was, it was not getting a lot of laughs from those folks. There was people more our age and they, they were kind of like little pockets of laughter throughout the theater. But a lot of the, the very Danielsy type of, of bizarre humor was not landing for some of these older folks that were there. It's funny though, because my mom, whose name, whose age name, whose age I will <laughs> not say, cause that would make her grouchy, but she's retired. Yes. She would. I know she's going to love everything everywhere all at once and that she's going to love that humor. To me, the Daniels 
have a humor like not that different from Judd Apatow, except it's not sexual and adult. Like it's yeah. more it's more juvenile, right? Like yeah. So this I can't, I don't know which Daniel it is, but um, one of them said that their goal with Swiss Army Man was to make a movie where the first fart makes you laugh and the last fart makes you cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this movie is very fart heavy. Yeah. And I will say, I think farts are super funny. Yeah. Now, if you don't think farts are funny, you're probably going to hate this movie. Yeah. If you, if every time we say pee pee poo poo, you're like uh, rolling your eyes. Yeah. If every time we see, say pee pee poo poo, you're thinking of never listening to us again. You're probably not going to like anything the Daniels do. Or us as <laughs> <Yeah>. people. <laughs> if you're still here, wow. Yeah, c- congratulations. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to take a quick deviation to talk about the fact that I'm a messy baby. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably the sloppiest eater in the world. Pretty sloppy dresser. Don't know why anyone hangs out with me. But I've been told it's a vibe, so whatever. <laughs> also, I've been getting get a, compliments at diploma yeah. marking on. I was like, gonna say you get a lot of com you get a lot of compliments for somebody that is a, a sloppy messy baby. A sloppy messy baby. I wore my A twenty four googly eye shirt today and I had two people who didn't give me compliments yesterday, but I got eight compliments on my sweater yesterday. Eight, eight yesterday. Hell yeah. These are people who don't know me. So like it's not like they're even pandering to me. I don't know why you would. What cultural currency do I have? But yeah, I had like somebody from across the table was just like, I love your shirt. And then after um I had a full Earl Grey tea spill in my bag today, all over two books, my AirPods, mm-hmm. a really nice bag you got me in Toronto. And by really nice bag, I mean a tote bag, because I don't it's a real nice tote. It's a real nice tote bag. Um so then I went to go get coffee from the coffee station because I no longer had caffeine. And then somebody came up to him and was just like, oh my God, is that E24? I love Hereditary. And I was, and then we just talked about Hereditary in Midsommar. Um, Are you feeling a lot of pressure to pick out great outfits now? You've set this I'm going to wear my Propeller Arcade shirt tomorrow. Oh, and then I'm going to yeah. wear my um, Nothing's Fine, I'm Torn hoodie the next day. I've got it planned. I love that you got a plan. Yeah, That's I'm going to look cool. Hell yeah. Um, so yeah, it's great. But <laughs> the point of this is I'm a messy baby and I was marking an essay and eating a granola bar and didn't realize that a big chunk of chocolate had fallen on my lap and then somehow got on the seat and smushed all over the seat. So when I recognized that, I was like, no big deal now. But at lunch, I'll try and clean it off as best I can. So I have this. <laughs> I love my I love my whole table. So we have ta- uh, five person teams that were at a table together when we're marking. Really love my table. The person beside me, I really, really like. And so I'm cl- trying to clean this off. And I just say, yeah, I'm a messy eater. And I got this chocolate here. It kind of looks like poop. And she goes, ah, the old poop chair. <laughs> and I'm going to be saying that for the rest of my life. Ah, uh, old poop old chair. Old poop chair. You can call a toilet a poop chair. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm saying is, if it weren't for the ending of this movie, I would really love it. And it's a shame because I think poop is funny. I think farts are funny. I think butts are funny. Well, by I think, the end, it sits in the poop chair. I think corpses being used as bottle openers and boats and um, what's that stuff called that Batman does? Grappling well, like grapple hook. hook. Yeah. Like I love that. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love it all. Great practical stuff. But I just really don't like the ending. No, I, I, I'm totally with you. How unique ingenuitive this is and it, it's unlike there's been two daniels films now that have been unlike anything i've ever seen before they have a knack for this and you can totally see 
so many strands in watching Swiss Army Man of the Daniels hadn't quite nailed the way to deliver a impactful message. Yeah. And then you can tell they fully finesse that and work that out in everything, everywhere, all at once. So what but they I, hadn't nailed they hadn't quite nailed the balance in this yet. So what I hear you saying is Swiss Army Man farted across the water so that everything everywhere all at once could Jojo Tupaki through the multiverse. Yes. It Swiss Army Man farted so that everything everywhere could butt plug. <laughs> Good hot dog. Um a lot of butt stuff in Daniel's movies. Something else I'll say that the Daniels do well. And I'm going to quickly sidestep that I hate the death of Dick Long, which we've covered on the show. And if you've listened, then you know yeah. that. We regrettably own it because it was just like, oh, that's I love everything I've rolled once. I'll probably love this too. Um, no. And Don't some of the, ick, the stuff that made me feel really icky in Death of Dick Long, I felt a similar ickiness in this, but they're not subject matter alike at all or even tonally alike at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that is common to Everything Ever All at Once and Swiss Army Man is the music being fucking phenomenal. Oh. The score being just... Both comedic, but so good. And just like swells your heart. And the other thing they have is just a playful visual cacophony smorgasbord that I just want to like go into that world and play around in it. Yeah, the Daniels. Death of the Daniels have a very good lock on visuals. I mean, if you look at any of their music videos that they did prior to becoming full feature-length filmmakers, they love playing with simple gags and visuals to get a laugh or to punctuate something. Like in Swiss Army Man, all of the stuff that they build in the woods and stuff to create scenes or. Yeah. It's visually, it's, it's visual candy, yeah. right? And there's little miniatures. You know I love miniatures. I do know you love miniatures. There's some of that stuff. Oh, yeah, it's it's so great. And the other thing that they seem to have in common between this Daniels project and Everything Everywhere is, you know, from everything we've heard is that both sets were really lovely to be on and just mm-hmm. a real commitment to the project from the actors. Like, from what I've heard, Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe really enjoyed their time making this film and- Daniel Radcliffe was like taking the Manny dummy around to like interviews and Mm -hmm. during promotion. And it just seems like they create a really fun and playful and yet professional environment. Um, Yeah. And I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome. I think it's important. It seems also like the Daniels have... I don't know if it's a spoken mission, but it seems like a mission to give people opportunities that they've never had before. Because mm. I've heard Daniel Radcliffe speak to this film and how it's, it was totally original and unlike anything he's been a part of or anything that he's been asked to be a part of. And I think Dan- Paul Daniel has said as much. And then, of course, all of the cast of Everything Everywhere mm-hmm. have said as much. So I think that, I, like I said, I don't know if it's their mission, but I mean, so far, mission yeah. accomplished. So Daniel Radcliffe's real butts in this. Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but in one of the shots of his real butt, I guess they were a little bit worried that there was too much, quote, crack. But Daniel Radcliffe said, it's okay. Leave it in. Leave the crack in. Um, <laughs> Release the crack in. <laughs> no. 
Um, so it's it's full on guy butt, like there's real butt, guy lots butt. Lots of guy butt in it. Some of the things in it that I think I really liked in 2016, I think I've just changed a bit as a person, and and just this kind mm-hmm. of very much feels of that time. of that time. And it's you know I don't deny the possibility that in 10 years I'll look back at everything ever all at once and be like, ah, oh, that feels very 2020s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's tough because I'm like, oh, I see the like early to mid 20s version of me that just loved this kind of thing. Yeah. But growth is cool. Um, and I, I think like both for us viewers and for the Daniels as filmmakers, like, you can see the growth that has happened in the time since making this yep. to making everything everywhere. So we have grown as have they. Yeah. couple of things I want to tell you. Mm. Um, you know how I sometimes like to give you some of the pieces of IMDb trivia that are divisive in whether people think they're interesting or not? Yes. Love this. So I need to know if you personally find this interesting. <laughs> there are four Dans in Swiss Army Man. Daniel Radcliffe, Daniel Shiner, Daniel Kwan, and Paul Dano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do and you find that interesting or not interesting? I love it. So I'm going to say interesting. There are 404 people who have said whether they find this interesting or not. How many do you think found it interesting of Four, 404? 404 people? <sighs> people can be real schmucks on IMDb. So I'm going to say 69. <laughs> 227 of 404 people found that uh, interesting. So like quite divisive. Yeah, yeah it's very pretty close to a 50-50 split. Yeah. Um, other thing that I love, <laughs> I might have to pull this out as a mystery movie pick one day. There's a movie called Thunderpants. <laughs> oh, yeah. You ever heard of it? No. Nah. Uh, I should just look up the synopsis quick. So Rupert Grint stars in that. My brother and I fucking loved this movie when we were kids. Thunderpants. Thunderpants. So it came out in 2002. So I would have been 12. Mm -hmm. This is the synopsis. An 11-year-old boy's amazing ability to break wind leads him first to fame and then to death row (laughs) before it helps him to fulfill his ambition of becoming an astronaut. Astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Thunderpants. Um, Hell yeah. So my brother and I watched this many times, and Rupert Grint's the main star in it. So there was a piece of trivia that said both Rupert Grint and Daniel Radcliffe have been in movies where they fart a bunch. Is it? I'm very curious now. Is it like a family film, or is it like yeah. a straight-up comedy? No, it's a it's a fa- it's like a kid's film. It's a comedy family sci-fi. Simon Cowell's in it. Death Row. Stephen Fry, the guy who makes the Eggie in the Basket and Beef Vendetta's in it. Yeah. Paul Giamatti's in it. Oh, Big Fat Liar. Um, but I, my brother and I would go around being like, Thunderpants, because it's because it's British. Um, <laughs> yeah, really, really great. Also, there's a fartist credit in this movie, in the credits, yeah. which is cool. Yeah. Two things I really want to share quickly before we move on. Um, Dan Kwan has said that making this film and then reflecting on it had a big influence on making everything ever all at once, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in the post Swiss army man time with his parents, he said, uh, he had to acknowledge that he, that his parents would constantly have to think about how they are the parent of the guy who made the farting corpse movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so he wanted to make a film that was like generous and like, a tribute to to his parents, which is cool. Mm. Um, this is also great. So Daniel Scheinert is from Birmingham, Alabama, 
And during a, a screening of Swiss Army Man in 2016, I guess uh, somebody in the audience went, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. And his theory is, he says, I never found out who it was, but I think it may have been one of my former teachers being like, what a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's great. That is such a teacher thing to say. Yeah. Like somebody who Daniel. knows somebody as a kid and then sees something they do as yeah, an adult. Yeah, like no doubt this is what he did. So yeah. I don't know, this movie is tricky because, yeah, there's so much about it that I think is innovative and I love that everybody was all in on it and it's beautiful and the, and the score is phenomenal, but it just as a whole doesn't work for me. And yeah. the ending makes me feel a little icky. Yeah, like there is a profound and relatable human story that exists in here, but it just where it goes and where it ends up kind of just soils it for me. And as a result, I don't now having watched it in this context, I don't know if I'd ever watch it again. Yeah, I think I'm done. But I'm glad to have revisited it. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a combination of goofy and icky. Mm. Uh, it made me feel a bit yucky, but happy that it got us to everything everywhere all at once. Yep. I feel that. And now to a movie with significantly less farting. Yeah, this is a, these could not, this would be a strange double feature. Um, <laughs> yes. So I was really excited to see this film and, you know, I've been, busying up my evenings despite the fact that I'm working so much and maybe to my detriment because I am ready to pass out uh -huh. um, but I just really wanted to see this movie and the other two times it's playing at Metro just didn't work for us so we went and saw um, the 2022 drama Saint Omer I don't know if I said that right but it's not Saint Omer Saint Omer Saint Omer um, it's directed by Alice Diop and written by her and I'm Rita David with some consulting from Zoe Galleron. Uh, it stars Kaiji Kagami as Rama and Kuzlagi Malanda as Lawrence Kole. The synopsis is the film follows Rama, a novelist who attends the trial of Lawrence Kole at the Saint-Omer criminal court to use her story to write a modern day adaptation of the ancient myth of Medea. But things don't go as expected. Hmm, that synopsis is... Hmm. Not my favorite. Could have been better. I think the Medea part of it is pretty minimal. So I wouldn't get overly excited about that or about the focus on a novelization. I wouldn't get too excited about that. <laughs> Be better synopsis. <laughs> Regardless, I'd heard really good things about this. I'd heard that it, you know, is an important film, that it's probably going to be something that lingers, um, that is important for years to come. So we went and saw it. What did you think of it? Yeah, this was one that I was looking forward to because of all the things that you just mentioned. But I knew nothing about it really going in plot-wise um, or what the um, plot was. <laughs> wow. I thought I was the one who was tired. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, but something that really surprised me as it was going on is that this film is a great exercise in patience mm -hmm. patience in a very beautiful way and a very heartbreaking way yeah but it's very honest in its patience and all the things it's delivering it's just this very human honest story i didn't i did not expect to be as court procedural as it was yeah 
and in a way that I never, I've never seen a court procedural play out in a yeah, film Yeah, because it doesn't play like A Time to Kill or 12 Angry Men or To Kill a Mockingbird. It, it plays as if you went and sat in on a court case. So here's here's the thing um, that I found out after watching the movie. Mm-hmm. So it is inspired by a real case. Mm-hmm. Um like the central crime, the central trial is based on something that really happened. And what happened is that Alice Diop, when that happened in real life, attended that trial and became, as she says, obsessed with the case and was very intrigued by the fact that most of the people in attendance were women. Mm-hmm. Um And so she, quote, wanted to find answers to her own intimate questions that she had asked herself about the relationship with her own mother and being a mother herself. And she decided that since she shared those same emotions with so many women, if they were also obsessed with this one event, it meant there was something universal in the story, something which had to do with motherhood. And so she decided to make a film about it. But it's born out of her being an audience member of the trial of the real case. And so... That makes so much sense. Yeah. If I were a user on IMDb, I would say that was interesting. <laughs> I didn't I didn't bring in the stats for that. <laughs> but I guess um prior to this she'd only made documentary films. Mm. Um this is her first like narrative fictional film. Um and she said it she you know very well may have made it as a documentary if cameras had been allowed in the courtroom, but she wanted to um take this story and make it so this is another quote. I just think she speaks so well. I just want to give her the credit. Mm-hmm. She said, quote, she wanted to recreate her experience of listening to another woman's story while interrogating herself and facing her own difficult truths. So she wanted to yeah. blend that, you know, have that character of Rama as the one listening to it, but then showing how it impacts her and her own reflection on herself and her understanding of her own experiences and that comes across so strongly in the film. And I think we as viewers get to be another trial participant. We are not Rama, but we are in the court with her being asked to also reflect on our own understandings of motherhood, parenthood, and who we are. Yeah. that's. I think that that is super interesting. Like, And that just speaks so well. Having not known that, it speaks so well to what I said about this feeling so honest and human mm-hmm. because it it feels so documentary-like. And like we are literally capturing something that really happened. And I, and I like that viewpoint too where we're kind of, the main character is Rama, mm-hmm. where we're brought into the story via her but then when we enter the courtroom, yeah, it feels like we're just anybody else that that is in the yeah. courtroom at that time. Where we kind of left the POV of her. Yeah, and, and so then we pick up with her when she leaves the courtroom again. And so through Rama, we are invited to ask ourselves what the trial does to us. Yeah. And it's really it is really interesting because there is a lack of sensationalism in this. If people heard like, you know, what the character of Lawrence is on trial for they could think that this is going to be like a really gritty emotional graphic you can't handle the truth yeah thing right and this film is not that Mm -hmm. 
And that's amazing. I think there's people who could go into it and be then very disappointed <laughs> if that's what they were aiming yeah. for. But I think that I haven't seen a film about a court case that's so grounded. Yeah, that's a good word for it. And so willing to unflinchingly face the sometimes mundane nature of the things that humans do mm. even when it comes from a place that we might struggle to understand that the reality of it is just that reality it's not hyper real it's not surreal it just happened yeah and somebody just did this thing and when we make these films like and these documentaries that you know, add in all this really intense music and these cuts and have people screaming and yelling. It just turns into a theater. Exactly. And I think in some ways it's easier to cope with it if we can distance ourselves from the fact that it's real. Oh, yeah. By heightening it, mm -hmm. right? Making it more dramatic. And this film doesn't do that. No. Yeah. It, I feel like this, this film hides behind nothing mm -hmm. and literally lays it all out there. I mean, an example of that, that's that makes this stick with me is that they do a lot of really long one take monologues. You love those. I do, but they're so long and the camera <laughs> is just locked off yeah. on the person. Um, Guslagi Malanda who plays Lawrence primarily gets that, that screen time to deliver these long monologues. It seems like it'd be hard to do. Yeah. Because it is just very, Again, it's just very human and very grounded. So it's not big, overdramatic, I'm in the courtroom kind of monologues. It's just recounting and answering questions. And she does it so well. And something that I didn't think about it until after the fact, but is a, another reason why I think that that resonated so much in me is that there's not any music that is playing through most of the movie, but it's particularly when we're in court. And I wonder if that is a device to exclude music to not influence or manipulate the audience in any way. Because being in the trial in real life, there wouldn't have been music cueing you on how you should feel. Exactly. And I think it was very smart and intentional on the filmmaker's part to, to not do that. I think because of that. So it's interesting. There's um, a person I follow on Letterboxd who I really tend to agree with his reviews and he actually saw this the same day as us but posted the review beforehand i think because he's um further east than us so mm. like we're just a couple hours behind yeah um and he said he was really tired when he watched this but that he felt if he watched it when he wasn't tired it could have been a five out of five for him and then i commented on his post and was like i literally feel exactly the same way like as i was watching it i'm like i'm too tired for what this is and so I know I'm not engaged, as engaged as I would be if I wasn't so tired. Mm -hmm. um, but despite that, because it's slow and it asks for patience, and I love a film that's slow and asks for patience, but when I'm really tired, I struggle to accept what the film is, is extending to me. And it's a couple hours, so yeah. you're in it for a while. Yeah. But I will say, despite that, this film snuck up on me. Yeah. And when it got me, oh, it, it was a grip that wouldn't let go. Yeah, And it's been lingering, like I've been thinking about it. I agree. It's very slow and very thoughtful. And the I have to say, uh, Keiji uh, Kagami and Guslagi Melanda 
are magnetic. And yeah. there is one scene between them that is the probably the standout moment of the movie or one of the two standout moments for you for me. Um, and then there's this amazing piece on motherhood that resonates and, and also speaks to, I feel like you can apply just to parenthood yeah. in, in general. Um, well, yes and no. Yeah. Yeah. But um, with a fo- it has this focus on motherhood and be, and just being a woman even. I, this is one of those ones that like, there's so much more I want to say, but just stay spoiler free. I think I just want to say that this explores motherhood and mothering and what we get from our mothers and our fears and all of that in a way that I haven't necessarily seen before. And it's nuanced and it's yes. complex and very real and very relatable. And I freaking loved it. I also mm-hmm. would be remiss. Um, I think we should start a new segment called Kylie's crush count. <laughs> um, because I have a huge crush crush on Kaiji uh, Kagami, like, holy crap, what a babe. Yeah. Um, could not pull my eyes away from her when she was on screen. And her fashion in this, mm-hmm. I'm just like, can you be my girlfriend? <laughs> Please and yeah. thank you. Like I said, magnetic. Like, And she is particularly good with subtlety. Like, Great face acting. Yeah, she doesn't have a ton of dialogue. So she does a lot of... Acting with her face, acting with her body, is incredible. But if we were doing Kylie's crush count, are we at three, or would we call would we count what I talked about with Paul Mescal? So we're at four. Yeah, yeah, count it. So we're Paul, Tyka, Dan Rad, and uh, IG. Yeah. Kg. Uh. Kg. Kg. Did you look it up? You're probably right. I'm so tired. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. This. This is really worth seeing. I think it's worth knowing that it is a little slower. And if you are able to watch it when you're prepared for that, mm-hmm. that's best. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely one that I think is important to see. Yep, I endorse that. How did Saint Omer make you feel? It made me reflective on family and the the way that family passes things down from generation to generation and how that affects each generation. What about you? It kind of slowly hypnotized me. Hmm. And then <laughs> snapped me into a really reflective place. So were you tired or were you getting hypnotized? A little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. But it does, it does have a hypnotic kind of at, at a certain point you realize that it's like grabbed you without you even knowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty cool. Should we talk about dads? Let's talk about dads. Dads of the week. Who have you nominated for our bad dad of the week? So I think I've got a little unconventional here. Okay. I nominated them. That is unconventional. Okay. Yeah. Good. Tell me more. Um. So I nominated them. They, they, them, but not, <laughs> not in a, uh, <laughs> not in that way. Um. I think that 
the symbolic figures of of them they just represent the absolute worst of parenthood or of leaders of people who are supposed to be responsible for somebody or something you know through their secret motives the way they hide who they are so that others can't really see or understand them the way that they have predestined everybody else and other people aren't even aware of that um it's like how parents sometimes use children to like better themselves mm-hmm. with no thought for what's good for their kids um, or have mapped out their kids' lives but haven't given their kids any say in that. So yeah, I was also just struggling to find a singular character that I thought was representative of the worst of what a dad can be. Gotcha. But tell me who you came up with. Well, maybe maybe mine can change your mind, possibly. Um, but I chose Alamine from Boy. Oh, I think that's too harsh. But might so, be because I see so much of my dad and him. My dad wasn't that juvenile, but he had shades of it. That's the thing. It's it's how juvenile he is, and then that the effect that that then has on Boy and the rest of his family. Um, and the fact that he shirks responsibility and that he's absent for so long. And well, I mean, part general, of that is because he's in jail, so. Yeah. But um, it's somebody who, you know, made the decision to have kids. And that has just gotten really complicated for for him, but also for the family. I feel like the majority of this film is very much around self, like, being self-absorbed and do, being very selfish, which if you listen to the show, that's usually a nail in the coffin. Um, and yeah, I, I just think he, he, he totally embodies deadbeat dad. And it's the kind of thing that I think would make for a bad dad. I think what I struggle with, with that nomination, because I certainly considered that character is that, I think Alamin is reflective of a system that has let him down. And I don't think he knows how to parent. And I think the film interrogates that and has a level of reflection on his character's part that makes me hesitant to name him as a bad dad because it discounts the growth that is budding by the end of the film. Um... And I think stymies a conversation around the ability to become better. Mm. So you're kind of looking full arc. I think we have to. I think if we name a character who shows the seeds of change or who does change as a bad dad, then we are saying that then we're becoming really reductive and saying that just because you've done these things in the past, you're a bad dad forever. And that's not true for me. I think that's too simplistic and I think it denies people the ability to grow and change. And of course, accountability needs to be a part of it and reparation needs to be a part of it. Um, But I don't think that just because you've made mistakes or caused harm, you're terrible forever. Yeah, I hear you. I think that I think it I think you're right. I think it was a weird week because I think your pick is weird. 
<laughs> I think it's cool, so whatever. <laughs> but um I I yeah, I'm I'm willing to to go with your pick um for for what you just said about Alamine cuz I I I totally see that. I see the path. I I also like considered <laughs> I also considered picking Nada from they yeah. live. Um But them are worse. Yeah. Yeah, or the psychologist from Suspiria, but <laughs> Yeah, I considered the um, like one of the witches from Suspiria, but like I couldn't. I was too lazy to figure out what their names are. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, they them. Don't, Don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Uh, that is not to say that non-binary folks can't be our dads because they absolutely can. In the context um, of they live, they can't. They can't. <laughs> Rad dad. Rad dad. Who'd you um, nominate? Well, on the other side of the coin, I picked Boy from Boy. Oh, interesting. Because despite having all this responsibility thrust upon him, he searches for ways to still be a kid. And, you know, he takes on that responsibility because he knows that he has to. And I feel like, you know, much in the way that you just um, defended Alamine as not being a bad dad, it, it can also apply to Boy in that he learns and takes away important lessons he has this sort of a very similar arc of like kind of learning to be who he is and learning to improve or what his place is um so it's all about that learning and growth and moving forward that's really interesting and i i definitely see what you're saying i didn't pick a character from boy as the rad dad if i had though i would have picked rocky Mm. the little brother um i picked manny from Swiss Army Man. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear this. I just think Manny embodies like a sense of curiosity in the service of like honest reflection on who Hank is. That like who doesn't want that from a parent like this? I want to know more about why you're feeling this way or why you think this way, not in the service of shutting it down or judging you, but in the service of trying to understand who you are and connect with you. He's a, he's a really great mirror for us as viewers to mm-hmm. watch in the film of to make us kind of confront the questions that he's asking of very basic human things that we've just done societally that it's in some cases it's silly. And like, that was a big part of it. I put like his sense of like questioning the way things are, but yet he always remains empathetic. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, I think what you're doing is silly, but I want to understand why you feel that way. And he also doesn't roll over. Like when he makes up his mind about something, he, and you know, when he feels like Hank is harming himself or being too hard on himself, he stands up and says that, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just, there's a degree to which I think he is so reflective of the best things you might want from somebody who's playing a mentor or guardian or parental role in your in a, in a person's life is this sense of empathy, curiosity, protectiveness, love, like radical love, and yet won't cross that boundary of like allowing themselves to be like rolled over on. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, I'm down for Manny. Oh, man, I got double win today. Okay, Manny from Swiss Army Man. Be our dad. dad. Okay, Rad Wreck of the Week. 
So this is kind of cool. I've been um, trying to get Elliot to read a book for years. You go, you like, you go through these fits and spurts of like reading for years on end and then not reading for years on end. It's because there's too many things to do. When I'm left by myself. But down the YouTube. When I'm left by myself, it's like, do I edit the podcast episode? Do I make graphics? Do I play video game? Do Do I I work out? Do I do dishes? Or do I reading becomes, lay down and scroll you I scroll Instagram for funny videos? There's too many things. And with an undiagnosed ADHD, it's very hard to focus on one thing. <laughs> that is fair. I read a lot. Not as much as I'd like to. Because when you read and talk about reading and writing all day for work, sometimes the last thing you want to do is read when you come home. But I, I do read like two plus books a month usually. I thought you were just going to leave it. I do read. <laughs> I do read. <laughs> Don't be I read. Yeah, <laughs> not bragging or anything. Um, but I am trying to get better about like not buying a book just because I want to read it. So I heard about this book because a former student um, had read it on Goodreads called Greedy Notes from a Bisexual Who Wants Too Much. And I was like, wow, that sounds like me. <laughs> Kylie's mm-hmm. crush count being key evidence of this. Um <laughs> And it's a memoir by Jen Winston, um, like kind of a series of personal essays with like some gender studies, academic stuff in it, too. And I took it out from the library. I got it pretty quickly and I freaking loved it. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really, really excellent exploration of like what bisexuality means to Jen. Um, it also explores gender identity because they identify as non-binary and or they are non-binary it's a better way to say that mm-hmm. um it also is just like so perfect for a millennial because the cultural references are straight out of our youth oh it's so good i've yeah i've started reading it i'm uh i'm not too far into it but just like some of the references and some of the stories are so relatable for me yeah and i i i love being able to get so many pop culture references that are just right in my lifetime so it's just it's great for a number of reasons it's it's well written but it's like accessible and fun i mean as a millennial bisexual it's great to read that and i do think bisexuality isn't as often talked about or represented as it could and perhaps should be um so it was really great to read that but i also think jen winston does a really fantastic job of encouraging other diverse voices in her writing it's like not like she often talks about like as a as a white person who grew up like suburban middle class um encouraging other voices to be read as well and i just overall i really liked the book and i mean if it got you out of your reading slump i think that's a thumbs up thumbs up thumbs up Mm -hmm. so yeah jen winston's greedy notes from a bisexual who wants too much highly recommend great red wreck all right thank you so much for listening we drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Check out our cool new graphics. Hell yeah. Engage with us there. Mm. Also get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterbox accounts. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life. Drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these Swiss Army babies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads.
have to be bad. 